welcome to where the furniture isn't always the best, but them views, they are. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the 13th floor where the furniture isn't always the best, but them views are amazing. I am your moderator, B. Jones, and I got my boy, BJ, down bottom. What's happening? Hey, all good, baby. Here, blessed to see another day, and we're going to live to hopefully see another one. Absolutely. Be fresh in the building. What's going on, sir? You know, another beautiful day in Zamunda. We um live and direct as usual, man. Out here liberated, feeling good, feeling fresh evaded. Got the shoulders moving. Let's get it. Let's get it. Let's get it. Coach K, back on with us this week. What's happening? Um, I am great. Um, I'm awesome. I am um, all things that Fresh didn't say that he was. <laughs> well, excuse <laughs> a moi. I'm a, I'm a, oh. Oh, you know, man, you know how I feel about it, man. Some things haven't changed since episode, like, you know, five, where anytime you follow up behind Fresh or Faison, they have all this stuff to say about how they're doing. Just have me follow after BJ. Every time. Every time? Every time. How about we just start with you next time? How about that? How, you, how come you can't add some pizzazz to your joint? I mean, why you got to feel so intimidated? The tuner needs a tune-up, ladies and gentlemen. The tuner needs a tune-up. Just come out with and say, it's like we showing up to like Deaf Poetry Jam, like every time you do your intro. <laughs> That's, that should be a good thing. I think more people should have a Deaf Poetry intro. It is America, a how you feel about that? It is a good thing. If you notice, I didn't say anything about you. I directed it at Brett saying that he always got me following you. There it is. And we have our very special guest to come on and talk all things pregnancy with us this week, Dr. Terry Ann Bennett. What's going on, ma'am? I'm doing great. How are you guys? As you can see, we are up to the tomfoolery, as always, on the 13th floor, making sure we're having a good time while informing the people. Um, if you missed it, Dr. Terry Ann gave us a snippet uh, on our Juneteenth celebration a few weeks back. She talked about some amazing things within the world of obstetrics and uh, her her uh, <laughs> her journey as an obstetrician in the uh, in the field. And we want to um, give Dr. Terry Ann her just due so we can get into the seriousness of the podcast. Uh, for all of those <coughs> who don't know, Dr. Terry Ann Bennett is an assistant professor and maternal fetal medicine specialist at NYU Langone Hospital in Brooklyn, New York. She received her Bachelor of Science degree in psychology with minors in chemistry and biology uh, and her medical doctorate at the University of Miami. Throw your use up, baby. We in here. We in here. Uh, but after that, she went up and joined NYU and completed her residency in obstetrics and gynecology as well as a fellowship in maternal fetal medicine. And currently, uh, well, she works in the field of medicine as well, but she also is the director for recruitment and retention in the Office of Diversity Affairs at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine. So that is Dr. Terry Ann, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for having me, guys. Thank you for that intro, Brett. No problem, no problem. So yes, you are in the great state of New York, uh, setting an example for all of us dealing with COVID. How are things up there with you? You know, New York is doing pretty good, actually. We've been holding our numbers down. We have a governor who believes in science, and he's been really just leading us through the way. I mean, right now we're slowly reopening the state, but our numbers are still on the low side. We're still social distancing. Most people wear a mask correctly, some of the times at least. <laughs> we're doing pretty good, actually. We're looking forward to the new normal, I guess, so to speak. Got you, got you. So um, I guess, how do you feel COVID has affected pregnant women since, uh, as, as you see? You know, on a, on a more delicate side, it's really just amplified some of the fears that some women have already going into pregnancy and the ways of sort of the social distancing, creating isolation in many regard and a lack of support that a lot of women look forward to when they're pregnant. Um, some people have experienced sort of changes in how often they're seeing their doctor because a lot of us have changed the frequency of appointments and spacing out appointments. A lot of women have had to go to these appointments by themselves, to be quite frank, and some women even have had to deliver their babies by themselves. So it's been a little bit of a scary time in that regard. Um, the worst I would say is when people don't get the care they need for a multitude of different reasons. And some people just being so fearful that they don't want to come to the hospital or may even delay starting their prenatal care because they're scared to go outside. So some of that is sort of the negative. But in some ways, it's, there's been some positive, too, because one thing that's come out of COVID is this sort of 
thing called telemedicine, which is basically where you can talk to your doctor kind of like this on Zoom or on some form of a video chat. It alleviates that whole needing to get into your car and get dressed and find a babysitter and all that jazz. And you can really be able to connect with your doctor while you're sitting in your living room sometimes in your PJs. So I think in that way, it's, it's created an avenue, which as doctors, we already knew this needed to be the wave. Like we knew this needed, this was supposed to be the future of medicine because it just increases access, especially to more specialized doctors like myself. There's, believe it or not, you can't get a high risk doctor everywhere you are. And we know that that has a lot of significant impacts on outcomes, especially for black women. So there's negatives, but I think, you know, I'm an optimist. So I like to look at the positive and try to see how we can come out of this on the other end in ways that really can improve the outcomes, especially for people that look like me. As a doctor, how do you like that? Because I know my mom really enjoys the telehealth, um, but as a doctor, do you like it better? Personally, I think, I think it depends, right? There's some people and there's some medical issues where it's not gonna work and you might need to come to the hospital. But there's a lot of things that I do like if you need an ultrasound, obviously I can't do that by the video chat. <laughs> they ain't got that technology yet? <laughs> Come on, man, the iPhone does everything. I thought you could just, you're whooping. <laughs> right, that's kind of 50% what I do. So that part, you still have to come in. But if we need to have a conversation, if I need to sort of talk you through something or review your sugar log because you have diabetes or your blood pressure log because you have high blood pressure, that we can easily do over the video chat. You can either show me your log. There's some women that would just put the log up on the screen so I can look at it, or they'll email me a picture of it. We can kind of go through, make adjustments to medications. And then we can determine if that person needs to come into the hospital or not, depending on what's going on. So I personally like it because I find that more of my patients actually show up, to be quite honest, especially when you work in like an environment with immigrants and underserved minorities. You know, sometimes we have a lot going on. Maybe the babysitter didn't come or the family member that was going to help you showed up late, so now you missed your appointment. But if you can do that appointment while you have your baby on your lap or they're in another room or sitting in the same room with you, then you don't have to sort of worry about paying to get on the train because, you know, it's New York or even more expensive paying to get on a cab, but sometimes it's cost prohibitive for a lot of people getting a babysitter because you can't bring certain children at a certain age to certain doctor's offices. All of those obstacles are sort of eliminated. So for me, I love it because I feel like it's giving my patients more options, it's giving them better access to me, and they're more likely to show up for their appointment in some in some regard. So I think I think it's great when it's appropriate. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of efficiency gain there. Um, I want to go back to something you just said, um, and it sounded like a bit of a double entendre when it came to the disparities of care and people's fears of going to the doctor or the OBGYN now heightened because of COVID. Um, and I had a similar experience because my, my fiance is pregnant as well. And we had our first doctor visit a few weeks ago, but only thing I could be a part of was the actual ultrasound. And I was very grateful for that because we'll get into that, but I, I saw a lot. But the, um, the actual doctor visit, I didn't get to hear the same, uh, same thing she heard or talk, talk through what to expect for the pregnancy, things that we should be doing um, uh, being a pregnant couple. So, and, and me, I want to be very involved with the pregnancy. So, you know, taking that piece away from me because of the COVID, it's kind of a, you know, it's a downer, so to speak. I missed some of what you said because for some reason it froze for me. Um, but I heard you say you wanted to be involved as... Well, yeah, basically want to be as involved as possible, but it's hard to do so with uh, the COVID restrictions and everything. So I was talking about how like the, there's that double entendre where people with the high risk pregnancies want uh, or need that type of um, that type of care, but are also scared to go and get it because of, you know, the heightened risk and COVID uh, exposure. Yeah, seriously. I mean, it's hard out here and it's scary out here being a black woman on a regular day, but being a pregnant black person is on another level, to be quite frank. The first part of what I heard you mention too was sort of talking about the health disparities that we face. Um, in America, at the very least, when you look at overall numbers, black women are three to four times more likely to die by merely being pregnant in the United States of America. And if you're over the age of 30, which most people are nowadays who are getting pregnant, that number is even higher, four to five times higher. And in New York City, where I practice, the rate of black women dying is as high as 12 times greater than their white counterparts. So that's crazy to me. And there's certain areas, like if you're in certain rural parts of America, like Mississippi, or even some areas in Georgia, the rate of you dying when you're pregnant is as high as if you had a baby when you were in Rwanda. 
And we mentioned that a little bit in Juneteenth, but we kind of had to jump past it. But imagine you can be having a baby in America and it's basically like you're in Sub-Saharan Africa. That is mind blowing. And that is a real true statistic. You can look it up on the CDC, you can Google it. That's real facts. And so most certainly some of the downfall of COVID is that we think a lot of these disparities are going to worsen or at least be heightened. And I think right now, especially with the second pandemic of racism all of a sudden being something that everyone's aware of, um, I think we're starting to look at this in a very real way with different lens and people who weren't listening before are paying more attention to sort of tackling these health disparities so that black moms aren't dying to have a baby. But um, yeah, the support is real. And I think a lot of what black women are screaming on social media is that no one's listening to us or that black women are in pain and no one's hearing us or that we don't have the support that we need when we're in hospital systems. And I think that's why it's super important for us to have support systems like you guys, the partners, that's your role is actually extremely vital as an advocate for your partner, as a support person for her. And that's also why I think doulas are a big part and should be a major component of the care for black women. And that can come in in many forms. You said, what was that like, the, a doula? Yeah, doula. A lot of people haven't heard about doulas, but doulas are dope. Um, we have some alumni that are doulas, so we gotta make sure we do that as well. I know at least one. Well, yeah. So uh, break down what a doula is, please. So a doula is kind of like a patient support person. Um, I'll give you, I'll give a personal story for some people that some of you may know. So when Wendy Ann Dixon was pregnant, obviously, you know, me and her are super tight. She's president of our Black Alumni Society. And anyone knows if you're my friend or if I even know someone who knows you, I can like always be on the phone and be supportive throughout your pregnancy, especially. But um, we have another close friend. They live near each other, Noel. And so during Wendy's delivery process, actually, it was Wendy, her husband, and Noel. And Noel kind of played a role as a doula, even though she's not trained at all. But she kind of has that soul, that spirit of someone who's calming, someone who can like make sure they advocate for what you need, who can be there to support whatever it is that you need in that moment. So I think of a doula as more as like a patient advocate in the room, so to speak. They can mm -hmm. be someone who's with a, a pregnant person throughout their whole prenatal care. They can come to the visits, make sure that, oh yeah, remember you wanted to ask that. Oh, remember you experienced this yesterday, you didn't bring that up. Sort of to remind that pregnant person what their questions were, what their concerns were, someone to ensure and advocate that those concerns are being addressed during the visit. And then to really just be there for that pregnant person and guide them through the healthcare system, which can be quite intimidating to be honest. I accept that as a doctor. You know, we know that it's scary to see the doctor sometimes. And especially if you're a minority in this country where we know that the healthcare system is plagued with a lot of racism historically and presently then you definitely want to have another person in the room that can speak up for you. And I think that only leads to better outcomes. So a doula is kind of that person. They're like your advocate. They're like your homie. They're like the person that's going to stick up for you when you can't speak up for yourself. Is that similar to a midwife? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> so your doctor and your midwife can also be an advocate. Um, but no, a doula is really someone that's just going to be your support in many regards, your advocate, your support, but a midwife is someone who actually delivers babies. So okay. they are more so a part of your medical team. Um, and they, sometimes some pregnant persons don't have doctors actually, they only see midwives. And that can be okay in certain instances to be quite frank. And some people prefer to have a midwife, but your midwife is actually your OB provider. They're the person that's seeing you throughout your prenatal care and delivering the baby. Okay, that makes sense. Hey Brett, I'm gonna I'm go ahead and send, um... Chris, my, my doula resume. Qualified? <laughs> <laughs> you certified? I ain't say I was nothing about certified. I, I have a child, right. He has a soul there. in the spirit. I was there the whole time. Right. <laughs> I am a calming influence. So the doula sounds like one of those things that can definitely help within that disparity. Um, I wanted to ask, what do you think the major contributor to the disparity of care for black women and those crazy statistics you gave us as far as mortality during birth and everything. Um, but it sounds like it's just not the doctors paying enough attention and giving the, or providing that quality of care. It's multifactorial for sure. Like there's a lot of different things that, that play a role. Um, if I had to pick the top hitters, the main major reasons why black women are dying to have a baby, I would say racism is number one on the list. Um, mm -hmm. And that's in many facets, whether it's implicit bias or explicit bias and racism, 
that's by a healthcare system itself, but also by individual healthcare providers, doctors, nurses, midwives, everyone that's part of the team. No one, I think, is above having biases. And we know for sure that even the perception of feeling discriminated against can have an effect on your health. And I think we need to know that as Black people in general. Like, I know a lot of times we say, like, being Black is the risk factor, but I don't think it's being Black that's the risk factor. It's racism, not race, that's the risk factor. And I think that's a soundbite that a lot of health advocates and people who are big on social media and are trying to fight this fight to produce better health outcomes for us as Black people in general is looking at the fact that racism and even the perception of discrimination is leading to our demise and leading to poor outcomes for us. So I think um, that's a big thing that we must, for one, acknowledge, and then for two, work on eliminating within the healthcare system and how we're receiving care from our doctors and, our, and anyone really that's a part of your care team. So I'm loving the enthusiasm and fervor that you're speaking about this issue. Um, I have to ask the question, uh, given your experience, what do you do um, to advocate for those who can't necessarily advocate for themselves and create that change within the industry? You know, what I try to do on a one-on-one is, believe it or not, is to empower the patients because I'm a minority. I'm Jamaican born. I came here when I was three years old. Um, and so I understand and I come from a family that is fearful of the healthcare system and y'all know Jamaicans, we be having our own remedies for everything. And so, <laughs> and so some of it is a lot of fear of medicine in general. Like my husband always says, his stepdad says, he doesn't go to the doctor because when you go to the doctor, they find something wrong with you. Well, yeah, <laughs> because probably something was wrong with you, but how are we gonna really tackle the issue? So I think what one thing that I find is really teaching my patient and reminding them that they're in charge. Like, this is your right to get good health care. It is your right to not leave this room until you understand what I'm saying. It is your right to ask questions. It is your right to be a participant in your care. It is your right to be a deciding factor in what's happening to your body. And it's funny to say that, but it's sometimes people need to hear that reminder, to be quite honest, especially if they're coming from a culture where the doctor is basically right up under God and whatever the doctor says is what goes. And that's just not how we want to practice medicine. We want patients to be actively involved in their care and a part of the decision-making. So I find reminding people of their rights, which sounds crazy, is an important part of teaching them how to advocate for themselves. Um, how I try to fight the battle on a more larger scale is sort of some of the work that I do with teaching. So I teach residents and fellows um, basic and and more advanced medicine, but I also teach them about how to pay attention to social determinants of health and how to take care of patients who are black and brown and how their role in taking care of that patient and teaching them about their diagnosis will help them to comply to medical recommendations and have better outcomes. And then on a, on a more, I think, systematic level, we're teaching as an institution how to be anti-racist. We're also instituting a lot of this curriculum into the medical schools, which is really where it should have been in the first place. Because a lot of doctors didn't learn this, especially older doctors. They didn't learn about how behaviors and social determinants can affect outcome. A lot of what we learn in medical school is science, but we know that it's much bigger than that. And so we're really trying to change things on an individual basis, but also on a curriculum level as well. Awesome. That's awesome. So I want to jump into your specialty a little bit since uh, you, you deal in high-risk pregnancies, right? Um, our Black women, uh, we already know that high risk in general based on the statistics you've given. Uh, but black women being at more of a high risk, having children at an older age um, due to education or you know, career aspirations, whatever the, whatever the case may be, what advice can you give them, activities they can do, foods that they should eat, just things that they should make a regular part of the pregnancy to kind of combat that high risk nature of the pregnancy? You mean being a black woman in general or the age part or both? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess both, but you can start with the being a black woman in general. So for one, there's nothing about being a black woman that makes your pregnancy more high risk. I think we have to think beyond race medicine because there's nothing different about our bodies, which believe it or not is something that we also have to teach because there are people who think that our bodies are different. And I think that's again, just showing how the history of racism is still playing a role to t in today's functioning of doctors. I mean, there's a, not so much of a recent study, but a relatively recent study that polled medical professionals and found that non-black doctors thought that 
black bodies were different. They thought that our skin was thicker. They thought that we experienced pain differently. And we know that that then trickles down into people's pain not being treated adequately when they're in emergency rooms. Even when we're looking at children in emergency rooms being treated for appendicitis, they don't get the proper pain management. And that trickles down to, again, how um, black bodies are treated in pregnancy. And so that's a big part of of the outcry of black women is sort of redefining that our bodies aren't different. But um, I think when we're just looking at black women, ways that we can play a role in improving our own outcomes is to sort of start with preconception. I think in general, we don't really think about this because again, fear of the medical system prohibits us from really initiating care early sometimes. But if I could change one thing, I would try to get everyone to see a doctor before they got pregnant. Like when you started thinking about, oh, we want to get pregnant, and we're talking about planned pregnancies, which we already know 50% of pregnancies are not. But either way, if you were planning a pregnancy, the best way to start is probably to meet with your doctor before you start get, trying to get pregnant. So you can make sure all of your medical issues are in check if you have them, especially diabetes and high blood pressure, which we know plague our black and brown communities a lot. Um, and then you can make sure you're on your proper prenatal vitamins well before you start. So you can start the pregnancy from a good place. Because sometimes it's how you start that really will determine how you finish. So I think if you had to change one thing that could really impact what you can do as an individual, that would probably be the best thing. And if you were unable to get sort of a consultation or see a doctor before you got pregnant, definitely trying to see a doctor as soon as you get pregnant would be really important, especially if you have a medical issue. So that way you can really get things in check so you can start off on a good on a good leg so you can have the best outcome for your baby. And from the high-risk pregnancy standpoint, um, actually, where do high-risk high pregnancies start? Where does that, where do you draw the line at that? Is it 30? Is it 35? Is it 40? So, honestly, I, I don't really love the term high-risk because I feel like people just throw that out there. Like, it's just like used very loosely to mean a lot of different things. Because you'll hear people say, oh, I'm having a high-risk pregnancy. And a lot of times when someone says that to me, I ask them, what do they mean exactly? Like, what, what is it about your pregnancy that makes you think that you're high-risk? So people say that for a lot of different things. For me, as a high-risk doctor, there's, certain, there's levels to it, so to speak. There's certain things that really we consider to be high-risk. And there's certain things that, to be honest, are so much more common and probably if well-controlled won't lead to any poor outcomes if we do all the right things or a low risk for poor outcomes that we don't really get so excited about them, so to speak. So mm -hmm. age, one of those things, like someone's age actually doesn't get me excited unless they're like in their 50s or their late 40s. So in medical term, there's a thing called advanced maternal age or what we say is AMA, advanced maternal age. And it really is defined by if you were 35 or are going to be 35 years old at the time that you're delivering your baby. Once you hit that age, now you're considered advanced maternal age. And if you look at your paperwork, it actually says something like elderly pregnancy or elderly prima gravida, which means it's your first child or elderly multigravida means you've had a baby before, but you're elderly. Cause clearly this is probably written by men cause y'all are rude. <laughs> hey, yep. hey, hey, easy. Easy. I'm gonna have to come on. We, we brought her here. You know what I'm saying? We opened the door. You know what I'm saying? Easy. You ask a question, I'm giving you an answer. You know, I'm gonna keep it real. That part right there didn't have nothing to do with the answer. Clearly, <laughs> <laughs> these codes were written. It, it was. It was originally coined by somebody from of the mill. Would be a better way to. Thank you, BJ. That's the piece. So clearly it was written by You men. know what? I'm not even going to subscribe to that. I'm going to go ahead and cut you off before you start going again. <laughs> clearly it was a white man because they didn't give us no credit for us. If we messed it up, they would have they they said it was us. So. Oh, 100%. That's probably likely true. <laughs> All right. Either way, age is something that people tend to harp on. Mm -hmm. The reality is, yes, being of advanced maternal age does come with some risk. But I think what people have to realize is that by the mere fact of being pregnant, you your whole life is already different. Like you've already accepted a whole bunch of risks. And how I like to sort of address the situation is, is that there's no option that's without risk. And I kind of think about life like that. Whether you do something or you don't do something, there's risks to doing it and there's risks to not doing it. And similarly, your age is one of those things that sort of plays a role in these convolution of different risk factors. And the reason more so is because there's just a lot of different correlations with being at a certain age that are associated with pregnant, poor pregnancy outcomes. So being advanced maternal age doesn't mean that you can't get pregnant or that you shouldn't get pregnant. It just means that there is a risk of certain things being at a higher probability for you. And some of those things include what we call aneuploidy or genetic problems, 
um, spontaneous abortions, which most people refer to as miscarriages, pregnancy complications like having diabetes in the pregnancy or having high blood pressure in the pregnancy, or developing something called preeclampsia, which is what um, Serena Williams talks about and Beyonce talks about, which is high blood pressure in pregnancy. That can be associated with protein in the urine and a bunch of other stuff, like affecting your kidneys and your liver, um, problems with the placenta, and there's a higher chance of even the baby dying inside, what we call an intrauterine fetal demise, or commonly referred to as a silver. So we know for sure that being um, over at the age of 35 or older puts you at risk of these pregnancy outcomes being at a higher rate. And so does age play a role? Certainly. And we can look sort of at little different individual things, but being at a certain age, for one, when we think about just the fetus, it puts the fetus at a higher risk of having like certain genetic problems like Down syndrome. If you guys have heard of Down syndrome, right? Probably most people, at least college educated, have. But believe it or not, some people haven't. But certain genetic problems like Down syndrome is more likely to occur with increasing age. So if you had a baby when you were 20 years old, your chance of having a baby with Down syndrome is about like one in like 1,500, so to speak. But if you have a baby when you're 35 years old, then that risk is now one in like 350. But if you have a baby when you're 40 years old, now that risk is like one in 85. So as you get older, the risk increases. Does it mean that you're for sure gonna have a baby with Down syndrome? No, but it does mean that you're more likely to. Um, similarly with miscarriages. If you have a baby when you're older, the chance of a miscarriage tends to be greater. So if you have a baby when you're in your early 20s, the risk of a miscarriage is about like 10% or so. If you have a baby in your early 30s, about 15%. If you have a baby in your early 40s, it's about 50%. So it doesn't mean you're for sure going to have a miscarriage, but certainly the risk of a miscarriage does increase. So yes, there are risks that are associated with age, um, and we hope that we can mitigate some of those risks by controlling for comorbidities like high blood pressure and diabetes. But I think just being aware of these risks, um, paying attention to your body, and working towards avoiding complications from some of these problems is sort of how we tackle that. Okay, so I'm about to go into a pseudo real-time uh, consultation here uh, because I have <laughs> several questions from my pregnant fiance that we want to run down, um, and I think you're going to be great at answering them, and I'm glad that we're going to have you as a resource uh, going forward. Um, one of the first questions that she asked about the anatomical and physiological changes that the body goes through. Um, you know a lot of stuff is going on there, organs reorganizing to fit the baby and everything. Um, but how does what goes on with that and what is its impact on the labor and delivery process, especially as you get higher in age? My fiance is 34, so you missed the cutoff for the high-risk pregnancy, so don't worry about that. Um, but she's 34, so what should she expect with all of these anatomical and physiological changes? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And it's a tricky question. So certainly there are hormonal, hormonal and physical changes that progressively occur during pregnancy. And some of these changes by the graces of God is for survival. So for one thing, what happens when someone gets pregnant is their body increases their water content, so to speak. And the reason why that happens is sort of, again, God's way of protecting, our, protecting us and keeping us alive when we have a baby. So typically on average, if you deliver a baby naturally through the vagina, you have a vaginal birth, on average, women lose about 500 milliliters of blood just by delivering a baby vaginally. So what your body does to prepare you is it increases your water content um, greater than it increases your body's building up of red blood cells. And so when you lose a half a liter of blood, you're losing sort of like a thinner blood. And so you can lose 500 cc's and be totally fine and recover without any incident at the time. Um, so that's one way of some of like the physiological process from the hormonal changes that are happening body that's sort of built in to create survival so that we don't die simply by giving birth. But other things can happen like the womb expanding and like you said, moving the organs all around and we already know sometimes how that can affect how we're eating and even how we're breathing. And you know, what our bodies can endure as women, we're truly magical, obviously. <laughs> the reality is as we get older and potentially there's less muscle mass and a little bit more fat in certain areas, it can make things feel a lot different. And mm. so age itself doesn't seem to explicitly have a direct causation with these alterations in our hormonal and physical changes, but most certainly, especially if you have different comorbidities, this expected physiological change that happens in pregnancy can just sort of be confounded by that. 
Okay. Okay. Good deal. Um, let me know if we missed it. Cause I know we talked about high risk, high risk pregnancies and uh, things women can do, but did we actually hit on some of the activities that women who are considered high risk should do to help mitigate that? Yeah, so like I was saying, definitely seeing a doctor before pregnancy can help, seeing your doctor early. And if you have a medical problem, making sure that you at least, if not one time in the pregnancy, see a high-risk doctor. And that's not always so simple, um, to be honest, and it depends on where you are. But if you have high blood pressure, or if you have diabetes, then you should ask your OB to do at least a one-time consultation with a high-risk pregnancy doctor, a maternal fetal medicine specialist. At the very least, you're gonna have two doctors looking at your medical state and given advice. And sometimes that high-risk doctor can just kind of lay out a plan for your OB to follow, but at least you now have a dual relationship where if something comes up later on, you have another set of eyes that can jump in and kind of help to co-manage you with your primary doctor. Because again, being an OB, I mean, it took a lot of years, you know, four years of undergrad, four years of med school, four years of residency to do OB, but then to be specialized in high-risk pregnancies was an additional three years. So that's 15 years after high school just to even be in this field. So a lot of learning, obviously. So whenever I would say whenever you have any medical issue at all, if you're not seeing a high-risk doctor for the whole pregnancy, which may not be an option for you or even necessary, at least a one-time consult just to make sure all your T's are crossed, all the I's are dotted, and there's a plan outlined for you for your doctor to follow is extremely essential. What about like diet and exercise? Are some of those things, is there general uh, things people can keep in mind or is it kind of, does it have to be tailored to the specific pregnancy? It should be tailored because how much weight you should gain <laughs> depends on how much weight you came in with. So for mm -hmm. one, you're not eating for two. That's a myth. Sorry to burst the bubble, ladies. Oh, so look at that. <laughs> but you most certainly should be eating a little bit more. Now, how much weight you should gain depends on what your BMI, your body mass index is before you got pregnant. So if you kind of came in already at a higher weight, you probably shouldn't gain that much weight, probably 10 to 15 pounds, depending on where you started. Whereas if you started on the smaller side, you probably should gain like 20 to 30 pounds, but it really depends. So that should be individualized based on that mother. And then exercise, I mean, exercise is important for all of us. We should all exercise. I need to be better at that admittingly. But if you were already someone who was pretty good and you were working out, you could probably continue your normal routine, to be quite frank. There's rarely um, an instance in pregnancy where you need to stop doing everything. So if you are already pretty active and you're not doing anything that's going to allow you to fall on your belly, obviously, then you probably can continue your normal activities. So if you were running marathons before, you probably can continue doing that. But if you weren't a marathon runner, I wouldn't start like in the middle of the pregnancy. That obviously wouldn't be a good idea. So activity level is sort of just like basic stuff that you would do to maintain your normal health and should continue throughout the pregnancy as well. Gotcha. So Fresh brought it up a little earlier with the midwife. Um, in your experience, are there discernible differences uh, between the physician versus the midwife um, situation? Yeah, there are, there are differences, certainly. So first of all, I love midwives. I've learned a lot from midwives throughout my training, and even today, we collaborate well, we work together to keep our patients safe, but there are differences. I have a lot of friends that are midwives, and I think a lot, the public, I think, sometimes may not have a full understanding of what the differences are between having an OB and having a midwife. And some people think that a midwife is sort of more holistic in many regards, and less, they're less likely to do things to you, less interventions, whereas Doctors are really associated to wanting to give you medicine and wanting to do stuff to you when you get in the hospital and not allowing you to have a natural pregnancy. And that really just isn't true, to be honest. Because first of all, picking a good doctor is probably the most important part and someone that you trust, I think is really important. And establishing that relationship with someone who's gonna have you experience pregnancy the way you envisioned it, I think is a very important part of sort of a person's satisfaction throughout their pregnancy. And it doesn't, that experience shouldn't change because you had a person with an MD behind your name versus someone who's a midwife. So for one, the training is different. Like I just went through to be where I am to 15 years after high school to be a midwife. Most there's sort of different pathways. Most people are usually nurses first, like an RN, and then they go to a midwife school and get a certification that way. There's also different levels to being a midwife too. Um, but the training is different, but I like to think about it simply like a midwife is someone who's an expert in normal pregnancies and an OB is a medical and surgical expert in normal and high risk pregnancies. So the midwife can take care of you throughout the whole pregnancy if you have an uncomplicated pregnancy and they can deliver your baby naturally through the vagina if you have an uncomplicated sort of course, but if you need a C-section or, or help delivering the baby 
then you probably will need a doctor on hand as well. And most midwives, depending on the state, at least in New York, midwives work in conjunction with doctors for the most part, at least once in the hospital. But again, that really varies from state to state because it's state regulated. So I would really find out if you're seeing a midwife, I think it's totally fine and it's appropriate for some people, not everybody, but for some mm -hmm. people. But I would definitely make sure that you know there's some access to a doctor also that's going to be potentially involved if needed. Gotcha. Uh, what are your thoughts on natural births versus a uh, home births? Um... I mean, home births versus hospital births. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a tricky question. So home births sometimes goes through like these ways where people I like, think it's super cool. They think it's very holistic. They think it's mm -hmm. like a natural way. And for some women, I think it's a good choice. But I really don't think that it's a good choice for everyone. So I understand the appeal, you know, you hear the stories and if you hear someone have a safe and successful home birth, it sounds beautiful to be quite honest. But the reality is, especially for people who have like any form of medical or maternal or a fetal issue with their baby, then home births can be a huge risk. Now on a personal level, after I carry a baby for 10 months, I'm not taking the risk associated with delivering my baby outside of a hospital where necessary interventions that could occur in seconds if I was in the hospital is not gonna be able to happen if I'm in my living room. That's just my personal take on there. I mean, obviously I'm gonna be guided by the lens that I'm a high-risk doctor, I see a lot of high-risk issues and I see shit go down. So for me, I think the risk is too great. And I think a lot of times what pushes people to sort of consider delivering at home is because they think it feels safer, they're in their own space and they're not gonna like sort of have some of the restrictions that they think occurs when you're in the hospital. And, but the reality is that's not always true. You can have a lot of the sort of freedoms that you think you're gonna have at home in the hospital system. You just, again, have to pick the right doctor in the right hospital. So when you look at the literature, if you look at like the research of what's the safest thing to do, you can probably find a study to back up whatever you wanna say. Like if I was someone who was like, everybody should deliver at home, that's the best way to go. I can find a study that says that. I can find a study right now and pull it up and say, look, the outcomes are the same, if not better. The reality is though, if in the most recent literature that's published from our national organizations is that home births are not considered as safe as hospital births. So am I completely against it? On a personal level, yes because I think that the benefits can be established in the hospital and I think hospitals are getting a bad rep. And a lot of that is our fault. I don't think mm -hmm. I'm taking it away from hospitals and doctors. I think we need to rebrand and let people know it's safe to deliver in a hospital and that they can have the experience that they're desiring and that they dreamt about. But if I have to pick what is the safest thing to do, if you are my sister, you are my friend, I'm gonna tell you the safest thing to do is to deliver in a hospital where if something was to pop off, it can be addressed immediately. If you need an emergency C-section, that can't happen in your living room. And to be quite frank, sometimes seconds count, minutes count. That can be the difference between a live baby and a dead one, to be quite frank. It could also be the difference between a live baby with full brain functioning and a baby who's alive but maybe suffered some brain damage depending on how long they were deprived of oxygen, et cetera. So I think home birth can be considered for certain people. I think you really have to fit a really strict criteria. You have to really not have any major high-risk issues. You have to have a plan. That's the most important part. And most people who do home births, if they're like fully certified and they're all hooked up in the right things, they probably have all this laid out. They probably have a doctor that they can easily call um, if they need to quickly decide that you need to go to the hospital. They already have a hospital in place that they send all their patients to. You know where that hospital is and you know how to get there and it's really close to your house. So it's not going to be like a 30 minute drive. So most really good um, midwives or, or home birth attendants have that plan in place. So I would say if you are really a good candidate and you meet someone who has all the box checked and have a very clear plan of what's gonna happen if something was to go wrong, then maybe you, it might be the best option for you. I can't take that away from moms who wanna make that choice. But I think the overwhelming majority of the time, the risks are real and I think it's safest to be in the hospital personally. Is there a hybrid method where they kind of set up the home <laughs> like, <laughs> like the hospital? Because you just get He just ruined everything, Brett. What he was about to have his Erica Badu situation hooked up. He just knew it was gonna be amazing. <laughs> and now he's like, hmm. No, 
<laughs> it ain't sounding so groovy. Uh, you he know, said, "Now, mm, I'm so sure." How how can we can we mix the two? You put incense and candles in the room while you're at the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, unless you're Beyonce, I don't know how you're gonna hook up an operating room in your living room. You got Beyonce money? Not yet. No, 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 no. I'm trying to find out what's that rental fee like. What, what yeah, you, you know what I'm saying? I mean, they got a rental program, I'm saying. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? We can put that on credit, right? They, you can put that on credit. Honestly, like I said, for some people, it's a really great and beautiful and safe experience. Like, honestly, I'm not taking away mm -hmm. from that. You just have to be the right candidate. You have to mm -hmm. really have every all the check boxes in place. But most importantly, you have to be able to get to a hospital very quickly. I mean, I have friends that's done home births. Honestly, I think friends at some home. Find the closest, the closest hotel to the hospital, and then you do it in the <laughs> hotel room. So it's still kind of like, but if anything go down, boom, you right there. Right there. There you it have is. A good midwife, a good midwife who knows when to be like, you know what, it's time to go to the hospital. Mm -hmm. And you have to be close to the hospital. Those, are, I think, are the two most important factors. For some people, it's the right thing. But for some people, it's really not the best decision. So speak, sure. please speak with your doctor. Or a good doula, if you get a good doula, <laughs> definitely let you know guy. when it's time to go to the, to the hospital. Girl, you delivering babies with a doula certificate? Advocate. Hey, listen, you you already just advocated. <laughs> you know what? I think you're discriminating against me because you had a female friend that ain't got no certificate and you said that she was the doula. But now I'm trying to advocate she was for great doula, and you want me to be certified. But she did not deliver the baby. I ain't said I was gonna deliver the baby. I just said I'm gonna let them know when it's time to go to the I hospital. Know, like, hey, this don't look right. Let's go. <laughs> a lot of blood. Uh, I think it's time to go. <laughs> All right. So last question, uh, and then I'm gonna try to loot the fellas back in uh, with this one. But um, one of the biggest, uh, what you call it? Uh, Are you trying to get that together? I'm just saying. You know what I mean? If I see the booty coming out first, like, no, it's time to go to the hospital. Make a call. You know to make a call. You know to make a call. Anyway, one of the biggest symptoms we're dealing, right, dealing with right now is the indigestion. Um, I sent you the text message, and in her words, God awful. Is there anything that can be done about the indigestion during the pregnancy? So... Man, the indigestion sucks. And a lot of pregnant women get it, if not most, to be quite honest. And that's, again, a part of the physiologic and the physical changes that are happening in the pregnancy that make it much more likely. And you don't want me to get into it because it's super boring. But what you can do are the following things. One, when you eat is really important. Mm -hmm. So you really want to avoid eating like within three hours of your bedtime because lying down after you eat is really a big part of what brings on indigestion. And that's true even for you non-pregnant male people on the, on the mm -hmm. video. So eating like- the, yeah. the humanoids. Yeah. yeah, the humanoids. Yeah, you others. Um, <laughs> three others, very important. Making sure that like you're not wearing anything that's super tight, especially that squeezing like the upper, part of your abdomen, because that, again, is just going to kind of help everything to kind of come back up this way. Mm -hmm. Then the type of food you're eating is really important. So again, if your indigestion is terrible, then I say you got to kind of keep it real boring, like spicy, saucy, all that good stuff out, because that actually is an activator for the indigestion. So you mm -hmm. want to really avoid like coffee, colas, which really you should probably only have one cup of coffee a day anyway. So those don't have any nutrition. Yeah, we just had that conversation today about the doggone coffee. Right. Colas aren't, you know, sodas aren't really nutritious at all. So probably shouldn't be having that anyway. But if you're going to have one. Water. Sparkling oh. water is okay, right? Say that again? The sparkling water, that's okay, right? Get a soda stream. Yeah. <laughs> Certain teas, um, citrus fruit, chocolate, fatty foods, all that stuff really leads to symptoms of indigestion. So if you're going to have any of those things, obviously try to have them in the daytime, try to not lay down for at least 30 minutes, if not a few hours after you have eaten them. And what you really want to do is just keep your, your head up. If you're, I'm someone who likes to eat and kind of just be like slouched down or laying in my bed, but you really want to be at a certain angle to try to make sure that you're not really flat mm -hmm. um, to, to sort of prevent the food and the, the acid really from coming back up. So when you eat, the timing of when you're laying down and what you're eating are the big factors. And if none of that works, then you might need medicine. So you have to talk to your doctor. 
Gotcha. Sounds pretty uh pretty uh regular as far as the indigestion goes. So I can give her them same tips. Um looping us back in. Uh so dealing with this pregnancy, we are in going into the second trimester. So I think about twelve Congratulations. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um there the hormonal changes, you know, that's that was a, a something to deal with. I'm better now. It's cool. Um but you were struggling with the hormonal changes? Man, I was struggling, man. And then, you know, the sleepiness, like I was just sleepy all the time. And then the food, like, I don't know, man. I just couldn't keep anything down. It was horrible. Uh, but, you know, that's starting to subside and everything. I was just playing. Um, but one of the things that's really important to me, uh, because me and my fiance both had children, <clears throat> excuse me, outside of together or whatever. So, and it wasn't the same experience. Like we weren't with the person that we had a child with. So one of the things that's really important for, with, for me this time around is to be as involved, um, trying to maintain uh, a certain level of composure, deal with some of the things that are thrown at me, but make sure that she feels supported and you know, I'm doing all the right things to decrease stress, not add to stress and you know, bring a healthy baby into the world. How do we accomplish that with all of the craziness that you women throw at us? I'm going on mute. Oh man, wow. Carol, you looking like you like this question a little too much. You see your chest poking out a little bit? No, my <laughs> chest is poking out because you've been slanging at us all the podcast. <laughs> the comeback and is here. Brett just <laughs> threw something back at you, so that's all. Well, I'm about to keep it neutral in here. <laughs> right now. The balance at the end of the day. Well, Brett. You know, I thought a lot about this actually because I'm a, I'm a feminist and a woman doctor, so I don't see men. So I really don't think too much about how to take care of men and how to guide you guys so much through the pregnancy. But I really have been thinking about this a lot because it came up a little bit when we had our Juneteenth talk with Carol too, sort of how do we help men to be better support people during pregnancy? And so I came up with what I thought were my like five top 10 things men can do to be more involved and supportive in the pregnancy. I just want to make sure y'all caught that, ladies and gentlemen, the five <laughs> top 10 things. Wait, is that what I said? <laughs> yeah. The five top 10 things we as men can do. Hey, man, I promise I'll put that thing slide pregnancy. through when I was ready to text about it. my bedtime. See, Carol, what if you had been speaking to me at 9.30 like you suggested? Oh, we'd have been all the way live. <laughs> oh, we had a three top 10. All right, we're going to read Top five, top five, top five. All right, so here we go. Here's what I came up with. One, new baby, who this? Be on the same wave. I think that's super important. Like women are doing, and pregnant persons are doing so much when they're pregnant, like not drinking alcohol, we're switching to a healthier diet, trying to you know be healthy, make sure we maintain our regular exercise. So I think a way that you can help her out is by making some of these changes too or at least some of them, maybe not, you know, no one's saying you can't have a drink just because she can't have a drink, but making some effort and being, I think, conscientious of the fact that she can't do certain things. Don't get drunk every night. Yeah, don't get drunk every night and she can't even have a glass of wine. You know what I'm saying? It's, mm -hmm. it's, a, little, mm -hmm. it's a little off putting. Um, mm -hmm. So make the effort to make your pregnant person feel as if you're going through this together. So I think kind of making some adjustments that way can really play a part of making sure that you guys are on the same wave. Um, another thing, number two. <laughs> two of 10, ladies and gentlemen. And two, so <laughs> two of five. Two of five. Two of five. Two of five of the 10. five is just out there. Number two, anticipate her needs. So like, she's growing a whole human in there. You know, growing a whole human can be exhausting. So one thing I think non-pregnant people can do to help their pregnant person is to take on more chores. Maybe cook some meals, if not all the meals. Um, what happens when you're doing all this stuff already? I'm just, I'm just asking I'm for it. Throw it in there. Well, maybe you're acing the game. You're acing the game. Do oh, okay. Chores, pick up some more chores around the house. Cook some of the meals, if not all the meals. Play an even more active role. You know, you said you guys both have other children, so play a more active role in the caring of other dependents, whether that's other children, if they're in your home or out your home, or other dependents like parents, et cetera, sometimes siblings, just really taking on some of the things that the pregnant person would have otherwise been doing, but now you're trying to sort of carry some of that load. And then, you know, sort of anticipate what her needs are, getting it taken care of, 
maybe before your pregnant person even asks. Number three, empower yourself with knowledge. <laughs> How can you do that? So read books. There's tons of books. Oh, I wish I remember this name right now. I'm thinking of a book. There's actually a book written by a football player, and I am not going to remember the name right now, but it's on Amazon. I'm sure you can Google it. But a football player, I think he's an ex-football player, wrote a book about like how to be a dad or something. And some of it has some interjections about how to be supportive throughout the process. So I would say reading is fundamental, obviously. Um, looking online, there's tons of resources. I'll give you some quick sort of Instagram and Googleable things. So the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, it's called ACOG, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. They have a website and a lot of really great patient-friendly information about basically all the things that potentially can happen to you throughout your pregnancy, but also what should be happening each step of the way. So even when you're thinking about this visit is coming up, what should I be talking about in this visit? You can sort of learn a lot of that online through these patient-friendly websites. The Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, which we call SMFM, again, the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, also has an online website. And both of these groups, ACOG and SMFM, have um, Instagram pages. So these Instagram pages also put out a lot of interesting information that are patient-friendly that you can really use to help guide you to understand what is happening at what point throughout the pregnancy. Another thing you can do, and I think, Brett, when you and I were talking offline, you mentioned sort of talking to other dad friends about pregnancy. Um, and like my boy Carol over there. <laughs> so I think that would be really dope is to sort of share experiences and learn from one another. I'm sure Doula Carol over there has a lot of great input that he can give to help to guide you. And you guys obviously have a great brotherhood and can be supportive of one another, but you most certainly can learn about pregnancy, birth, and beyond from your brothers. So I think we have to use all our resources. Doula Carol, would you like to chime in? Uh, I was, I forgot what I was going to say, so I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> at least you got the props. Um, you, you, you're a doula now, man, from Dr. Terry. Yeah. Benjamin Watson, the new dad's playbook. Yeah! Okay. I like, I keep for the day. I'm done. Drop, <laughs> mic drop. <laughs> yeah, that one. Um, number, is it three? Three! No, no man, four. we on four. No, Dr. Terry can't, can't count! I'm just talking. This is why she did not do math, mathematics. Right, four? Well, I thought four was other fathers. I don't know. As other fathers. We on 13. How about no. we... How about <laughs> Number four, um, be present, basically. Be present mm -hmm. mentally and be present physically. Now, how can you do that? For one, and one thing I like to tell my um, families when they come in is, you know, make sure you're running some baths, hitting these massages, a foot massage every night, ain't never hurt nobody. And, you know, really just being there and even just sitting around waiting for the baby to move. I think that's such a delicate and special moment for a future mom and dad. And just that presence of physically being there in that emotional moment, I think, really does a lot to build relationships and trust. Do you have um, any recommended uh, massage products, foot massage, back massage products? Oh, man, no, I don't have a product line. I oh, man. I don't have any products, but um, most essential oils are, are safe. You're not ingesting them. So just even if you're using, like, some lavender oil would be pretty good. Also smells well, very relaxing, brings down attention and helps... Um, the pregnant person to fall asleep, hopefully, which can sometimes be a struggle in pregnancy. That's a whole nother thing. Mm -hmm. um, another thing I think, and what these resources can help with in being present mentally is sort of being prepared for the appointments. I love when a partner shows up with their pregnant person and they have like their own little notepad and they're writing stuff down and they're asking questions too that they came up with before they came in. That literally just warms my heart so much that the the non-pregnant person is as prepared for the visit and knows what's supposed to be happening today as much as the pregnant person. So I think really trying to do that as much as you can. With COVID, it's a little bit different because sometimes you can't be in the visit. So being on the phone or being on FaceTime, I think is an important way to try to get that done. Um, and then attending birthing classes. There's like birthing classes you can take to help prepare for the process of delivery. And so being obviously an active participant throughout the prenatal visits, but even when preparing for the actual birthing I think is really, really important. Um, and if you don't have a doula, <laughs> you might want to learn some of the tricks because as a, a father in the room and as a non-pregnant person in the room, a lot of your role is to be an advocate for that pregnant person throughout the course of the pregnancy, but especially in the room and to sort of have that supportive presence. So 
that's another way how you can physically be present. Um, I think when we think about the mentals, it's, it's just as important as the physical. So trying to be understanding of new feelings and emotional breakdowns, breath. Yes. <laughs> um, I agree. Empathetic of the whole process. You know, it's really hard. To be honest, sometimes I feel really bad for the dads because they're not the ones oh. that like, feeling the baby move. So for a lot of fathers, I hear some people say that it doesn't really feel that real to them until like, they feel the first kick themselves or really after the baby is born, then you can actually see what this person has been feeling growing inside of them the whole time. And, you know, what's really tough sometimes, especially if there's like a complication that happens throughout the pregnancy or the delivery process, I think as men, especially as black men, I, I don't, you know, I know most of you guys pretty well, but a lot of you, you're strong black men, you were raised to be leaders and protectors, especially of your tribe. And just sometimes the process of the labor course and pregnancy, I think, can lend to, to feelings of helplessness or just really feeling unsure of like, what's your place and what should you be doing? So I think um, to overcome some of that, you really just kind of have to sit in that space and recognize that some of the control is out of your hands and just trying to see what that person needs in that moment. And I think if you build such a strong relationship throughout the whole course of the pregnancy, you really start to recognize what your wife or your, or your partner needs in that moment. Um, and then being the best birth partner you can be, whether that's holding a leg. I don't know how many of you have held a leg in the delivery room. <laughs> Wiping tears and sweat, ice chips, even feeding some ice chips, or even just accepting being yelled at a little bit as this little human is trying to make their way into the world is just a natural part of the process. And I think that's really just the top ways of being physically and mentally present throughout the course. And then my last tip, top five, is just reminding her that she's beautiful. I think that's super important. Pregnancy really can take a toll on someone's body and their mentals. And just a gentle reminder that that person's beautiful and how much they mean to you, especially as their bodies are changing and they may be not be feeling so beautiful themselves. Just to hear that from their partner can really make a world of difference. So that's my top five. There it is, ladies and gentlemen, the top five of 10 from Dr. <laughs> Terry Ann. Dr. Terry Ann, I definitely appreciate everything you shared with us on the 13th floor um, today or tonight. Um, I'm definitely going to take some of that stuff into our next visit. Um, and we will definitely be in touch and trying to utilize you as a resource. I'm sure Chris, once she listens to this, she's probably going to have some more questions and such. So I appreciate you being open to that. Hey, Brett. Um, being a doula that is supportive of both um, the pregnant woman and the poor man that's there. Yes, right. um, I can tell you that one of the most important things, right? Cause everybody thinks about the time leading up to birth during birth, but the part post birth or let's talk about postpartum is so important. And that's really, really something key into how you support uh, your spouse, your significant other, whatever it may be. But we may not have time to get into all that today, but I just want to tell you that is something that you, you want to look into and maybe um, you may want to get some pointers on as well. Hey, why don't we have Terry Ann back for another show? <laughs> That's what I'm talking about, Fresh. Always on. All your postpartum doula questions through postpartum doula specialist, Carol. So we're going to we do a doula show. A doula. A doula. <laughs> yeah, doula. <laughs> So we're going to bring both of y'all back to talk through postpartum and all of that, that goodness there. But uh, definitely again, man, thank you, uh, Dr. Terry Ann for joining us this, uh, this evening. Uh, Carol, I don't know what you're going to do to wrap this up, but you got a little bit of time because I'm going to preservation uh, in a second. I want to remind everybody that they can get this podcast on iTunes, Google play, SoundCloud. You can catch the videos on uh, YouTube and Vimeo and Dr. Terry Ann, where can be uh, uh, get connected with you? People can connect with me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. My Twitter and Instagram handle is Dr. Bennett MFM. So D-R-B-E-N-N-E-T-T-M-F-M. -M. Yeah, that, Dr. Bennett MFM. Um, they can also email me. I mean, if anyone's listening to this podcast, they're more than likely family. So if you want to email me at my personal email address, you can email me at Terry Ann Bennett at gmail.com. That's T-E-R-R-I-A-N-N. B-E-N-N-E-T-T at gmail.com or you can contact any of these beautiful black men and they know how to find me.
Oh, they, they're they're trying to clean up on the end. <laughs> I had to listen all the way through the last 30 seconds to get there. You know, she, she's solidifying that next spot. That's what that is. At least she ain't come on here trying all to move good. too much furniture, man. I love you all. All good. We love you too. Uh, be fresh. Be fresh. What you got for the preservation this week, sir? Okay. Let's see. Let me dip in my bag. Um. <clears throat> I wake up today with strength in my heart and clarity in my mind. My mind is a calm and beautiful place. It truly is. Negative thoughts only have the power if I allow them. Maintaining a positive state of mind is easy for me. My mind is clear and I grow. My thoughts are clear and empowering. I am able to live a calm, peaceful life and overcome whatever it is that bothers me. I think it is extremely key for people to be able to have the um, mental uh, capacity and ability to go ahead and push past those bad times or negative situations that pop into your life and always work as hard as possible to be as positive as possible, even in those dark moments. Um, energy is real. It's out here. It's apparent. It's scientifically proven. And um, positive energy is only going to get you more positive energy. Stay that way. Stay focused. All of that is what is fresh nature, baby. We out here. Carol, it's your turn. Morpheus, bring us home. Uh, I really don't know how you expect me to close this. I told you that. I said that already, bro. You, you had time. Let, get, you let, let's just, get it. You should have just let, let Dr. Terry Ann um, close this. But um, since you've got me here, I, I'll use the platform. Um, and I will say, look, if this is too stressful for some of you um, and you'd rather not deal with this, all you have to do is keep your legs closed. And that will minimize the chances of you even having to deal with any of this. Um, <laughs> But on another note, um, you, know, you know what, man? I just I think we just lost so many followers. They're like, man, he's using like, add, okay, add, add, add the add the <laughs> add the mail and, and keep it in your pants. Let's, let's do it the other side. There you go, keep it in your pants. You don't have to worry about this. Um, what'd you say? It takes two people to make a baby. It does take two to make a baby. Well, listen, we're not gonna get into the physics of this whole thing, but um. What I will say is that uh, preparation, ladies and gentlemen, um, you know what adds complexity to this whole thing is if you go in and have a baby that you didn't plan for um, and you didn't check to see what your resources are, you didn't check to see what your actual health insurance covers, um, you didn't check to see what the financial commitment is uh, to doing such a thing. Those things now complicate your situation. They add stress, uh, which is probably the most unneeded thing during this time. So um, make sure um, that you're being smart, make sure you're being intelligent. Um, it, it's not, it's not an easy thing, right? Um, it can be if you plan for it. Um, and then the biggest thing I would say is, is just make sure, look, there's a lot of information out there. Um, there are a lot of doctors that may not have your best interest in heart. Uh, but I think uh, I heard Les Brown say this, your, your diagnosis does not have to be your prognosis. Um, so definitely uh, make sure that you get all of the partners that you need, um, the spiritual partners, the, 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 the physical, the health, um, make sure you're taking care of yourself. So we've made some jokes during this thing, but seriously, make sure you find educated people like Dr. Terry Ann, who's in the field that can give you some guidance. Make sure you find that certified doula if you can. Um, and then just... <laughs> Just know that this is a precious moment between you and the other person that are involved with making this baby. Um, and really with the two of you being on the same page, um, you can have a, a great pregnancy and you can be great parents. There it is, well said. Thank you ladies and gentlemen for tuning, tuning in with us here on the 13th floor where the furniture isn't always the best. Welcome to where the furniture isn't always the best, but the views, they are amazing.